On the Rhythm, the Blueprint Series. I am Philip Llanos, your host. This show is about how personal philosophy affects creative work and life. You'll hear from successful writers, vloggers, and business content creators that are living proof of the benefits of discipline. Beyond bragging rights, this show is about sharing their blueprint with you. Open heart, open mind, and ask questions. Maybe this is the blueprint for you. Today's guest is David Maurice Sharp, an actor, dancer, choreographer, and financial advisor. The beautiful thing about what David has done with his book, The Thriving Artist, is that he's been able to take something that's complicated and scary for a lot of artists and creatives, made it easy to digest. And that's why I wanted to bring him along, because millennials, especially the entrepreneurial kind and the creative kind, have a hard time looking at money if they come from a background that doesn't have it, doesn't necessarily stay in their pockets. And no one understands the artistic struggle better than an artist. And that is why I wanted to make sure David was able to share some things with you here, but also to just to build awareness about his book. I know it seems like a hard sell, but the truth is it's the best 15 to 20 bucks you'll ever spend. Guaranteed. For a crash course in finance, you won't get it or find it any easier than through his book, The Thriving Artist. Now, without any further ado, David Maurice Sharp. I want to dive into this. Uh, you know, I had actually purchased your book from Amazon uh, short, when, before I left, shortly before, uh, I mean, after the, the event. And, uh, and then great. I took it Thanks to LA. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a great read, worth it. And, uh, and then I had met, I had met a, a friend of mine and she was really interested in taking control of her life. And even though I personally wanted to hold on to the book, it seemed uh-huh. like, it seemed like she really needed it bad. And so I gave it to her and, you know, thinking, looking back on it, I should just sent her the link. I, I should have kept the book. <laughs> this is my personal, <laughs> personal belief, but, uh, but I hope it's, it's helped her immensely because uh, I thought there was some really great stuff in there. Um, and I only gave it a one read through. I usually like to read a book two or three times before I consider myself saying I've read the book. Well, thank you. Thanks for that. I hope so. I mean, it was the, the intention of it was, I know that this is a, a subject matter that's very difficult for a lot of artists. Um, they're very afraid of it. And so, you know, just the fact that people come to some of the workshops that I give is already, I know, like a, a, takes a lot of courage for some of them. So I thought for the ones that sort of don't even have enough courage to do that, they could read a book in the privacy of their own home and not be threatened by it because nobody's going to be there sort of seeing how they react to it. So it's good to hear that um, you thought it was accessible and helpful. So that's great. Thanks. Absolutely. I, I would I would be so bold as to suggest the idea of millennials needing this just as much as an artist would. I think millennials in general, as far as the ones that I've come across, and it could just be the circles that I've come across, not necessarily the best when it comes to managing expenses. They live on the dollar that they earned for the day, and then they go and spend $2, that kind of thing. Well, I think it's interesting you say that because there's been a lot of sort of movement towards having it be sort of opened more towards millennials. Um, I, I have started writing a, a bi-monthly column for Money Inc., which is an online um, financial 
Information Center, and they were never geared towards artists. They reached out and said, we'd like to hear from your perspective, partly because they're interested in reaching out to artists, but also because I think what I'm seeing and what a lot of people are seeing are that, um, you know, what has happened historically forever is that artists kind of blaze a trail and then other people kind of follow behind it. And I think that's kind of what's happening with millennials right now. They're not looking to go into the workforce and work 30 years at the same job. Um, if they get three or four years out of a job and then switch careers or switch companies, um, that's more of the pattern that they're following. They are more interested in doing things that are fulfilling to them and making money to sort of support that, which has always been kind of the, the artist perspective anyway. We followed our passion and then figured out how to like sort of pay for it. Um, so they're kind of the millennials, I absolutely agree, are sort of adopting more of the lifestyle that artists have always lived um, and can and now have to figure out how to sort of support that within the structure that society's created, which is more geared towards people who work nine to five for year after year and get their 401k, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. Yes. There's definitely a, an audience there for that. Yes. Oh yeah. I, 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 that's what I was aiming towards was there's definitely that level of, you know, with the promulgation of uh, American Idol and uh, the voice and all yeah. these other reality TV shows, everyone wants to be a rock star and right. everyone wants to live the rock star life. But not everyone has the rock star pocketbook or the rock star team to manage that. Right, right. Well, and there's also, you know, I have a nephew who's um, who's now in college uh, studying music, and and when he was kind of trying to make the decision about going into it, and was you know had you know a lot of reticence because of just what you hear that it's such a difficult life and everything. I said, you know, one of the things you have to remember as an artist is it's not there's not it's not just about being a star or being completely unsuccessful. There's a big, wide array of experience in between those two extremes. And there are many people in the arts who have incredibly fulfilling careers and incredibly artistic careers and are never at one end of the spectrum or the other. They're right in the middle, doing the thing that they love to do, making a living, you know, surviving, doing their art, doing great art without being a star. So um, I think that, that, you know, a lot of the reality TV stuff that we see sort of makes us forget that, that you don't just have to be, you know, a megastar in order to be successful and fulfilled as an artist. Right. And you specifically know that firsthand because you didn't start off in the finance world, right? Not at all. No, I was in the dance world. I knew nothing about finance when I got kind of pulled into it just to make some extra money um, just to help support my modern dance career. Right. And that's like, that's what people would say is classically trained with modern dance. Yeah. I mean, I took a lot of ballet. Modern is, is, is more like what now they're, they, they sort of refer to modern dance as contemporary dance. Mm. Um, So, but, but certainly there's a very strong classical um, training involved in that. Um, so, and it, it, it's not certainly one of the higher paid professions in this country, particularly. Um, so there were always, you were, I was always looking for other ways to sort of supplement the income I could make dancing. 
and happened to sort of get sucked into the the financial world and kind of found a niche to exploit um, and which gave me the flexibility to keep performing while I was still making some extra money to help support that. Yeah. I remember in the uh, event I was fortunate enough to, to be invited to, I, I swear it was either by chance or destiny. Uh, I remember a, a buddy of mine I was making music with told me, Hey, there's this open mic over at Capital One uh, over in the, I think it was Midtown. And it was Midtown East. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you should definitely stop by and maybe we'll even get a chance to play. I was like, oh, well, you know, sure. And so yeah. I had, I had no idea I would be meeting something so important to my life that even to this moment now, it's still relevant. The information that you shared, you awesome. and your colleague who was with you uh, for right Did now. Did you see the self-producing one with Fran Kermser? Well. Yes, that's the, yeah. the, so. Yeah. So that's that. That was her. That was the, that was the lady, Fran. I remember Fran. Yeah, she. Uh, you and her also got into crazy topics like getting access to uh, grants from your local city halls. I think was what you had mentioned. Right. That's where. That's Fran. That's where Fran. Um, that's her specialty is in in grant raising and funding and self producing and all of that, which was. She and I work together or work in the same venues quite a bit um, because one of the things that we were starting to find was that there's not a lot of people addressing financial concerns from the artist's perspective. And so um, we kind of keep trying to, you know, we, we keep in touch with one another and keep supporting one another's work that we do and also keep our eyes out open for other people that are sort of interested in and working in helping artists with these kinds of topics. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, part of, part of what this whole podcast thing is, it's about how personal philosophy affects creative work and life. And I think a personal philosophy does include a way you consider managing your money. And uh, that's definitely one thing that I found in your book, you know, not, not to give anything away. I think anybody who would ever listen in on our conversation should definitely consider the investment. It's like $15. I think, uh, 15, 20 bucks. It's totally worth it because the stuff that I, that I took from there, I, every time, like, I just, I, I like to impress my friends and then they're like, you know, I, I mention a few notes and they go, Whoa, I, I didn't like, yeah, well, you know, I, I read a lot as you know, and this is the book that I read it from and they go, Oh, okay. 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 Now I happen to be able to remember certain things and then I go and I share it with people, but I think there's no better way to get information than to read it for yourself. I think, yeah, I think you're right there. I think you can hear it from people, but I think reading it and like really taking it in is, is, is a great way to absorb it. So, so that's great. That's great. And how great was it that, that a financial institution like Capital One was actually willing to host an event that was for artists and about artists? I mean, that was what really shocked me when they contacted me about doing that. I was like, Okay, you, am I going to have to sell Capital One products here? <laughs> what's the what's the issue? What's going on here? And they were like, "We don't even care if you mention our name." Right, and and you know, you I actually I met with one of the uh, one of the people responsible for that uh, shortly after the event. I went to another Capital One and ran into somebody who was at that same event, and her name is uh, Jessie Tavares. Uh, yeah, Thayda. yeah, she's the one that she was one of the two people that that brought me in to do that. Yeah. Yeah, she's a total advocate. So she's she does. Uh, I think she's involved in the marketing aspect of Capital One, and but she's a total advocate for the arts. And I, I think Capital One is 
clearly doing something right when they're when they're including artists, people who have artistic um, uh, leanings to to be able to to receive valuable information from experts like you. Like I still think it's it, it writes itself when you look at your story. I, I honestly believe that some people's sometimes it's their life that is their gift to the world because I mean you go you go into the dance world. And you realize how difficult it is and you start like you start digging deeper into yourself. How much more can you give? And like a true creator, you went in and you decided, you know what? I need to make money. And if I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to worry about my, my imagination. If I remember correctly, tells me that you said you didn't want to be worried about money anymore ever again. And so you went into the finance world. Now, is that correct? Well, I used that to help support what I did Ah. because the, the, I think the thing with, with artists is always, we're always worried about where the next dollar is coming from or where, you know, we're going to pay our rent from or what we're going to be able to do. And I did, I never wanted to live my entire life doing that. And I was like, there has to be a way that we can be artists in this country and, and feel comfortable about our finances. Um, and use the, the strengths that we have as artists to allow us to do that. Um, and a lot of our strengths as artists really are very applicable to the financial world and make us very good at it, um, and good at manipulating it to sort of help ourselves and finding ways to use it to help support the art that we do. So yeah, when I kind of fell into this financial job after, after like a couple of years of sort of temping for them, they were like, we'd love to hire you. You know, will you work for us? And I was like, no, I'm, I want to dance. I don't want to do this. Um, you know, that, that's what I want to do is dance because you don't have that much that your, your career as a dancer isn't that long lived because you age out of it very quickly. Um, and was able to, to get them to agree to let me work, you know, 20 hours a week, whenever I could fit it in, which looking back on it, you know, everybody's like, that's unheard of. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's unheard of, but it, it, it never occurred to me that you couldn't do that. Why couldn't I do that? You know, it's unheard of because nobody else did maybe, but what, why does that make it not something you can do? So I think that, you know, if you, if you learn, which we as artists are sort of programmed to do, to take advantage of the situations as they arise around you, then things like that happen for you. I mean, the publishing of the book, I had never published a book before that one. And I just happened to be at dinner with friends and said, you know, I have this idea about a book. Some of my students have been bugging me to write a book. And they're like, oh, we can, we can introduce your idea to the, the, the acquisition editor at Taylor and Francis, if you want. And I was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Okay. I'll just, I'll write up, you know, I'll look up and see what I'm supposed to do for the, for that kind of a presentation. And it was like, you know, whatever you had to do, like two sample chapters and uh, do some research and things like that. Turned it over to them. They, you know, after like two months, they said, okay, here's a contract. When I've talked to other people who have written after that, they're like, how did you get a contract from a publisher that fast? And I was like, it didn't occur to me that you couldn't. Wow. It didn't occur to me that you needed to go another direction. And I also think there's something to be said for that information needed to get out at the time that it did. And, and the yeah. world found a way to get it out there. So, so I think just not, you know, the, the more we, we sort of don't put these, this, 
these structures around us that say you can't do this or this isn't the right way to be. A lot of the financial um, angst I think that artists have is is that battle between, well, we're not supposed to really have a lot of money as artists, you know, but it would make it easier if we do. And, and we need to kind of break out of that. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money as an artist, you know, and feeling comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's not harming your art, certainly, to have that. Right. right. I mean, do you uh, feel yeah. like your art is being compromised because you feel like now you're becoming more financially stable? No, not not at all. I thought that's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It frees you up because you're then free to do more of what you want to do. So for example, so think, this is yeah, a passion this is a passion project for me, being able to bring you on to to share a little bit about your life story, how you got to where you are, and then to dive in on one or two topics for the book. Like this, this is a, a benefit of having the money to be able to do that. Right. Right. You know, and then you get to share your story and your creativity and with other people. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and speak. And so like, I really want to get into like the, the book aspect of things. I, I think one of the most important things I, I took away that, that stand out top of mind to me uh, was the idea of if you do have savings, which not a lot of artists do, but if right. you do have savings um, and you're able to, let's say, I think your example was if you have three months worth of savings or what you would need to live, uh, no, let's say four months, I think it was, then three of those months you could put into a a, a bank security. I think it was a CD. I, I can't remember. Um, I'm not the expert here, but I, this is what I remember you saying. And then when that time passes, your money, your money would have made money for you while you still had some savings on the side, just in case you needed that cushion. Right. It was generally for that. You're talking about an emergency cash stash that you yeah. have for yourself. And, and, and a lot of with, with sort of conventional wisdom, they tell you to have like four to six months. Artists usually you want to have closer to eight, 10, even a year's worth. Wow. The problem with that is that because it's cash, it doesn't earn much interest. If you look at your bank savings account, there's not much there that's happening. So the idea is that if there's ways that you can find to sort of tweak extra interest out of this cash that you're, you have as your emergency reserve system, why not try to take advantage of that? So if you have you know, the first few months in a savings account that isn't earning very much, then at that point, you might want to consider adding some later months worth of cash into something like a CD. Because you know that it's by the time the CD comes due, like if it's a six-month CD, let's say, and you already, you know, you have six months in your savings and your um, money market account, which is readily accessible, you know you're never going to have to dip into that CD um, before it comes due, which would incur a penalty because you have the other six months there. So in that way, you can sort of tweak a little bit more interest out of those extra months, which are in the CD, because CDs tend to pay higher interest rates than savings or money market accounts because there are restrictions on them. So it's using your creativity. Sorry? Because you can't pull it out early, right? Well, you can, but you get penalized for it. So uh, they're discouraging you from doing that. So by do by keeping it in there, you make that extra interest. So 
that's one of the examples of using your creativity to sort of tweak as much out of your investments as you possibly can. Um, and even if it's just a little bit more, it's still better to have it in your pocket than to be giving it to someone else. Right. Right. I, yeah. And, you know, I, and in case anybody ever listens to this and decides, whoa, what did they just talk about? Like you explain all this in such a digestible fashion. I, I think I think there may have been only one or two sections where it's because I read so fast that I personally skip over words that I didn't define or I look overlook the definition that you left. But uh-huh. other than that, I personally truly believe it's one of the easiest books to digest right. on finance that I ever came across. Great. That was what I was hoping for because you don't want it to be scary. You want it to be understandable and digestible. And and I purposely put in, I had to fight with one of the editors um, about having short chapters with it. Um, they wanted to have longer, they wanted to combine everything into longer chapters. So I don't, I don't think, I think the longest chapter is maybe 10 pages. Um, and I said, no way, because a, you know, this is already a topic that artists don't really feel comfortable with. And if you may give them a 40 chapter or 40 page chapter, they're going to be like, forget about it, especially 40 chapter, 40 page (laughs) chapter on bonds. I mean, yawn, nobody's going to read that. But if you break it into, you know, five little chapters, it's very digestible Then you can read it on the subway. You can read it, you know, um, in very digestible. And also then it makes it easy to refer back to various topics and figure out, oh, I wanted to know something about municipal bonds. I don't have to go through this big 40-page chapter. I can just look at the chapter on municipal bonds and, and refresh my memory about what that is and how those could maybe work for me. So that was a little bit of a battle, but luckily the, the publisher stood behind me and said, we get it. We're going to let you do. Keep the, keep the small chapters. So. Which is unheard of just as well. Like <laughs> you, having, you having complete creative control of your book is amazing. <laughs> It was, especially that was one of the, you know, the the things that made me a little reticent about going with a big publisher like that was, am I going to have to, and and it started, I'll tell you, it's the, the, the first sort of warning flag that came up was when they were, it was before I had signed the contract and they were going into the committee to, to determine whether they were going to give me a contract. And I heard from the acquisition editor the day before and said, we're going in tomorrow, but it looks very good. But, you know, our um, our ad team that wants to is is talking about changing the title, and at that point, the the working title was "Thrive as an Artist," mm. and they wanted to change the title. Their suggestion for changing it was to be something like "How You Can Save and Invest as You Know Whatever," something no, something no. incredibly sterile and everything. And I I remember reading this email from them and just going into like a panic of like. Oh my gosh, they don't get it. And I'm not going to have a choice in this. So luckily I had just gone into a movie theater and I read it before the movie started. So it's like, okay, I can't respond to this at least until after this movie's over. So I had time to sort of calm down and sort of think of a very careful response. So got home and I emailed her back and said, appreciate your feedback. You know, the re- let me, maybe if I explain why I chose to call it as I did, that will help, you know, for you to understand why it's important. And then got into the whole thing about it's the opposite of a starving artist and that, that it really just having that kind of thriving artist 
actually inspires the people that are seeing it to think about it and will maybe make them pick the book up, whereas something that sounds more clinical is going to keep people away from it that are the ones that really need it the most. So the next day, I got an email back from her saying that she had actually printed out my email to her and read it in the meeting, and they totally got it and then decided to to go with the thriving artist. So I was like, Phew, okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's 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 some sense of uh, <clears throat> an invisible hand moving this information into the forefront, right? And right. I I couldn't be more grateful. And I have to ask if if there was a if there was a a chapter that you wish you would have been able to read before you even knew you were going to write this book, and you were knee deep and dancing and and f- trying to figure out the finances before you ever gave any talks on, on, on managing money. And you were just like, how am I going to make this work? Which of the chapters in your book do you think would have spoke to you the most at that time? I think, um, you know, to be honest, probably the last chapter, which talks about sort of undoing all of the, the preconceived notions that we have about it. And, and talks about, giving ourselves permission to thrive and to be successful and to not be afraid of, of what we're doing. Because mm. I think that's one of the things that works the most against us as artists with our finances is that we feel like we shouldn't understand it and we can't understand it. So if you, I, I, I would never recommend someone read something from the back forward, but um, that would probably be... <laughs> Um, that for me was kind of the summation of what it was to be a thriving artist, that last chapter. The being okay with money in your pocket. Yeah. Being okay with that, that, that you deserve it. That conversations about what percentages you're going to be earning shouldn't be a scary thing that should only be left up to a management team if you're lucky enough to have one. Exactly. But, but you should also understand what this team is doing for you. So that you don't feel like you're just, you're, you're flying blind and you're letting someone else take care of things for you. You know, it's, it's great to have, I, I always talk about that with when people say, should we get a financial planner? Hmm. That, that's a very individual decision that you have to make. Um, but if you're going to have a financial planner working for you, isn't it in your best interest to sort of at least have a basic understanding of what they're doing? You may not know all the details, but at least have a basic understanding so you know you're not being taken advantage of and you're comfortable with it. I think the other key thing for me with this is if you look at the financial advice that's available for what I always kind of refer to as the regular people, the people that work the nine to fives, 401ks, want to retire at 60, whatever. They're basically financial advice can be a formula for them. They do this, 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 and this, because they all kind of live the same kind of life in terms of how they're earning money and, and things like that in terms of their financial life. If you look at a group of artists, each one of us is living a completely different life from the other person and has different needs and different things that we want at any particular time. So <clears throat> you as an artist, or what I try to teach artists is how to think for yourself to be able to look at, okay, right now, what do I need? What's the best move for me to make financially? And that's going to be different for every single person. And it's going to be different a year from now for you than it is right this moment. 
because your life will have changed. So if I can help people sort of get comfortable enough with understanding their finances and understanding the different tools that are available to them to be able to help make that assessment. And then from there determine, okay, I need this person to help me with this right now, or I need to bring this person in, or I don't need anybody to help me because I'm comfortable enough doing it myself. Then I will have succeeded in helping artists, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you have any morning routines tied to, to the idea of finance since you are an artist and in the world of finance? I, I don't really. I mean, I, I, I definitely, you know, keep an eye on financial news um, just because it's something that interests me and sort of intrigues me. Mm. Um, I, and I try to just sort of keep an eye out on how, how those things are going to be affecting people in the arts. Um, I love the, the workshops and classes that I give, hearing the questions that people ask, because a lot of times that really helps to inform me of where you know, people's ideas are going and, and where, they're, where they're in need of additional information. So I, I really get, I really enjoy the sort of interaction uh, with the people that are in the workshops for that reason. Because as I said, everybody's different and you, you forget, I forget that, that the amount of information that I already know that I kind of take for granted that other people might know. And so always being able to go back and say, okay, let's go from square one and assume that nobody knows what this is. How do you make it understandable and not scary? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know what? There, there, I, the other day, speaking of scary, the other day I was, I was at an event with this organization called Entrepreneur Organization, uh, which I'd like to find a way to get you plugged in there because there may be some entrepreneurs out there. I think the entrepreneurial lifestyle is pretty close to the artistic lifestyle. Absolutely. I think you even made that conclusion that same day uh, at the Capital One event. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they may, they may find what you have to say fascinating. I mean, I think in my personal opinion, uh, we'll see, we'll see. I'll try to drive that forward, but it was an interesting event because there was a speaker there named Cal Fussman. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No, I haven't. And uh, Cal Fussman is, uh, he's an author for Esquire magazine for like the last 20 years. And, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali to uh, what have you, Johnny Depp, whatever. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and he interviewed uh, even political figures. Uh, the names escape me right now, but he, he has this interesting thing that I, I was wondering if you'd, if you'd be willing to entertain and indulge. He does this thing where he asks people better questions because his whole thing is like, the better questions and which I feel you've asked the better questions as an artist for finance. And, and, uh, and I want to come back to that and see if you, if you can think of some questions that an artist should be asking themselves. But before that, Cal Fussman had offered uh, two questions. One was um, who is your best friend and why are they your best friend? Or what is the best lesson your father or mother ever taught you? Would you like to tackle either one of those? Wow. Those are great questions. They're both great questions. Um, I think one of the, one of the great things that my father did for me was to instill an idea of financial and fiscal responsibility and an understanding of investing or an interest in investing, regardless of the fact that I was going into an arts oriented, um, field, which sort of shied away from that kind of information. So, um, as we know, in, in this country in particular, 
there's virtually no education with regard to personal finances for anybody, mm-hmm. unless you're becoming a professional financial advisor. But if you look in junior high school, high school, those are prime times when people could be, when there could be classes teaching people just the basics of investing and saving and, and having a budget and, and things like that. Um, the fact that I had uh, a parent who sort of helped to instill that in me, despite the fact that there was no outside um, education on that, I think um, really served me well and helped give me um, the courage and the strength to sort of keep investigating it on my own. Wow. Yeah, I 100% agree with the idea of having an education regarded relating to that in junior high and high school. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then you get to colleges. I mean, there's a couple colleges now. I know the University of Florida, there's a class down there that every fall they use my book in one of the classes as a required textbook. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it's a class about um, design. I think it's a design class. Um, set and lighting design. And there, um, this, I think for the past, well, almost since the book came out, probably three years now, they've had it as a required textbook. So um, there's, there's slowly starting to be some awareness of the fact that, that of how integral a role this could play in, in it. It's not just about your artistry. It's also about living your life and having the support for it. Um, if you could start that in like, junior high and high school, I mean, imagine how much better off everyone would be. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And do you, do you feel that there, are, there, there may have been questions that you weren't asking yourself back uh, when you were just an artist? And, and even though you did have that opportunity with your father, I'm, I'm sure there was, as you mentioned, periods where you just weren't sure what was going on. And were there questions that you felt you weren't asking yourself to keep yourself away from having to face the idea of money management and, and, and what would, what would those questions be? Well, I think there was always the fear that you would, I would, you know, where was the next amount of money going to come from? Where was, you know, and, and particularly you've lived in New York. Housing <laughs> is, a, is a terrifying thing in New York yeah, because you never, you, you know, you can never feel that secure in a rental situation for, are they going to raise the rent too much? Am I going to get kicked out? Is it going to be this? Is it going to, you know, there's, there's, there's so much angst with, um, with just sort of living your life and having the money to live your life. Um, and, and then add to the fact that you're an artist and you have a fluctuating income and it's just the, the, the stress can get overwhelming. And I was always someone who was like, how can I, figure out how to reduce that kind of stress so that I don't feel that because that takes away from what you're doing as an artist. And so how can, how can I try to do that? And how can I not have to live hand to mouth constantly? Um, so I think I was pretty lucky. I mean, I could probably, I would have to really think back sure. to those days of, you know, I'm sure there was, there were, there were plenty of things I was anxious about and not, and trying to avoid but I was always, I was always trying to figure out how to budget my money, how to, how to help even it out, how to, in those, those times when you got the gig that paid you more than you needed, you know, how to sort of put that aside so that it was, it was there for a later time. Um, 
And yeah. I think eventually over time that all kind of coalesced into a lot of the ideas that I put into the book. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would actually like to hear your opinion on how often someone should be looking at their finances, especially as an artist. How often should you open up the application to look at your bank account? And I know it's scary, but like you said, spreadsheets really do help get that stuff figured out. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I talk a lot about figuring out your monthly nut how much you need to get you through a month. Right. Um, I think you, that is an exercise you need to do at least once a year. Usually I tell people do it in January when you're starting a new year, just sit down, figure out your expenses, figure out how much it takes to get you through a month so that you know what your monthly nut is, what you're shooting for. Um, then you, then you have the information that you also need for how much you need to put into your emergency cash reserves. In terms of, of your investments and the, and the different places that you have money, once a quarter, I tell people, at least put, do, a, do a spreadsheet that shows what every, once every quarter that shows what assets you have, what your liabilities are, so that you get a snapshot of it. Um, there's going to be times when you're so busy doing your art that you don't have time to think about anything. That's okay. Make sure that your investments are, are sort of in places that you're comfortable with so that you can let them go for a while, but still try to do the, the quarterly thing, which is only going to take you, if you have a spreadsheet set up, it's only going to take 10 or 15 minutes once you get the statements to, fill, to populate it so you have a sense of where you are. The yeah. times when you're not that busy and you're really interested in saying, oh, let me see what the next thing is I need to do, um, then you should then, then attack it then and say, okay, this is the time. I don't, I don't have that much going on. I can really sit down and sort of figure out what my next step is, what my next goal is so that I'm ready to start pursuing that. See, and I like that because it sounds to me like it excites you to know how your investments are doing and what's going on with them. You don't, you don't seem to have a, a fear-based perspective on your investments. Exactly. Well, what you'll find is once you start doing it, um, it's scary at first. It's terrifying. Because you think, oh my gosh, it's, it's, I'm throwing this money out the window. But as you start to see them grow and you start to, and, and the, the doing of it is also the learning of it. You know, it's like your craft, your art, you know, the, whatever your craft is. You don't just say, I'm going to wait and do my craft uh, until I know absolutely everything about it that I can do. If you, if you did that, you would never actually do your art. So mm-hmm. it's part of doing it is, is is learning and it, and feeds the information that you have to make you a better artist. The same is true with your finances. Once you start working in them, you start learning more about it and then you can sort of add other pieces to it. And once you start seeing on a quarterly basis, those assets growing and your liabilities diminishing, it becomes exciting. And you think, oh, maybe by the next quarter, I'll be $5,000 higher in my assets. You know, if I just do this or this and I let this investment keep rolling along. So it actually becomes something that can become exciting. Hmm. And, and a good, a good entry level investment uh, for people to look into just off, off the top, if there's one thing that's really low barrier entry and uh, not a lot of risk, you know, you're not going to get a lot of gain of course, but it just to start experimenting right. with the idea of investing for an artist, what, what, what would you recommend? Well, one of the things I would tell people, I've, I've had many people come to me who have said, look, I'm absolutely terrified to do anything other than have money in my savings account at my bank. 
because everything just seems so scary to me and so uncertain that I don't think I can do anything other than that. For those kinds of people, what I usually say is look at U.S. Treasury bonds, Treasury savings bonds or Treasury notes and bonds. For savings bonds, they have a new one called the Series I bond, which is an inflation index savings bond. It's like the old Series EE bonds that people used to give as gifts for graduations and things like that. You can't sell them to anybody else. They're in your name. You have to put them back. I think that you have to keep them for a minimum of five years. They're paying, these days they're paying like 1.3%, 1.2%, somewhere around there, interest, which is significantly higher than a savings. They're, they're protected by the U.S. Treasury. Right. So they're very safe. You can get into them. The minimum to buy one of those is $25. Oh, wow. Very accessible for everybody, right? If you want to go a step up above that, you can get into U.S. Treasury notes, which they're the, I think the shortest duration is two years for a U.S. Treasury note. Again, paying around 1.3, 1.4%, something like that right now. The minimum is $100. No restrictions on it. Right. Okay. Other than you have to keep it for two two years if you want to sell it back to the government. Otherwise, you can trade it on the market. But again, both of those are very accessible. The interest on them on both of those is also exempt from state and local taxes. So, really? Yes. Yeah, so the, I mean, there's 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 this notion that you have to have a lot of money to get into things is is not accurate. It's there's ways. Twenty five dollars. There isn't anybody that can't together $25. Yeah, I might have to look into that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and or even $100, you know, for, for a treasury note. Now, again, you, you know, you're going to be getting cents, even if it's 1.25% or something like that. It's, you're not going to be getting rich off of that. But you're going to be getting more than you would get with your savings account. And it's an introduction into suddenly you have bonds, which is right. the second piece of your portfolio, the, your well-balanced portfolio above cash. So suddenly you're having some exposure to bonds and you're kind of getting a flavor for how that works so that then you can look to the next thing that you might want to try to invest in, which may be a little bit more money. But at that point, once you understand, you have a better understanding of the risk levels. So putting a little bit more money into something that's a little bit riskier once you've done this other step becomes less um, difficult to do. Right, start earning ten percent interest with a, even though the the risk is the risk is high, the the interest is also very nice. Yeah, or even if you're going up to two percent, I mean, ten percent, you know, is a is a big jump. That would be a big jump and probably very risky. But you know, I was I the other thing I always tell people is, look, if you have if you have a thousand dollars, that's all you have to your name. Investing a thousand dollars is scary in something, right? Because that's right. 100% of what you have. Right. Once you get to having assets of $10,000, investing 1000 is still a little bit scary, but it, it's not quite as scary because it's not everything, right? right? Once your portfolio gets up, your assets get up to $100,000, suddenly that 1000 isn't looking so scary and you could take a little bit more risks, right? Mm. And when you get your assets up to a million, 1000 on something that's risky, isn't that significant, right? So it's, you know, go at your own pace. The worst, the, the worst thing you could do if you're, uh, if you're already a little bit nervous about it is putting, put money into something that's incredibly risky that's going to burn you and make you never want to do anything again. 
like uh, like the foreign currency exchange, Forex. So it's a, there's a lot exactly. of people that come across, a lot of people who are like, I'm a Forex trader and I'll help you make money. <laughs> you don't know anything about it. For example, yeah. Or people I hear that there's somebody that is, is uh, giving seminars on how you can, you know, do future trading, futures trading to make money to invest in, and which is also incredibly high risk. Because mm, it's I all speculative. Think, yeah, it is all speculative. And you're, you know, it's, it's it, in a time when the market has been increasing like it is, okay, but when it, when it turns the other way, which it's inevitably going to do, then you start getting really hit badly. And then how is that helping you to to sort of develop a, a financial wellness program for yourself that's going to keep you healthy and and encouraged no matter what is happening in the market circumstances. Not that you're not going to lose money in those, but if you you know if you're well balanced and you have really taken the time to set up a, a well balanced portfolio, you're not going to be hit as hard as if you put everything in foreign currencies and then the currency markets drop and then you lose everything. You know. Yeah. Have you, have you looked into, yeah, yeah. Have you looked into what am I cryptocurrency at all? Like Bitcoin and yeah, like Bitcoin, that? Ethereum. I have a few friends who run an Ethereum company. And it just I mean, they're they're saying that cryptocurrency and the blockchain technology is supposed to be what the internet was to us back in the day when it first came around and people had no idea what a dot com was. I always keep an eye on it. I've kept an eye on Bitcoin since it first came out. Um, I don't personally invest in it. Right. Um, I'm very interested in what it is because I think that it, it is. I think the the, the uh, programming underneath it is, is definitely start, they're looking at ways to apply that to other areas of the financial markets. Um, I think Bitcoin just passed $10,000. Yeah. Now, which yeah. has started at like 900, started the year at 900. So there's definitely a frothiness to those markets. Um, the other one is Ethereum. Is that the other one you were talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. I know I have some friends that, that are sort of dabbling in that a bit too. Um, I think it's, I definitely think it's interesting. I look at that as being, um, if, if, if it's going to be an investment as being, um, Fringe isn't the right word, but an outside investment. I always look at the core portfolio as being the sort of stable combination of cash, bonds, and stock. And then you add, you can add to that. Once you have sort of a stable core, you can add these sort of more um, experimental, if you will, kind sure. of investments, which can be very exciting, but are also very risky and can be very um, frothy. So, sure. but again, like we go back to that topic of if you have a solid core of a it's certain amount, right. you have things to play with. You know, I also get asked questions a lot because, you know, obviously they, they try to push traditional financial <laughs> advice, tries to push everybody into mutual funds and exchange traded funds, which I don't disagree with. Um, I also give classes on buying individual stocks and I've had financial advisors. Oh, how could you be telling artists to buy individual stocks because the you know putting all, putting money into one stock you you take on the risk of that one stock whereas a mutual fund it sort of spreads the risks around and my comeback to that is always look if you have an artist who wants to buy shares of coca-cola 
or McDonald's or JetBlue or something that they're really interested in. And they're excited to say, I own a couple shares of this company, which I really like because I love this company. It's going to make them interested in investing. And then they can go get the you know, large cap stock fund that's you know, the mutual fund that covers it all. But you're never going to find anybody that's going to come up and say, I'm so excited to own 100 shares of this large cap stock fund, <laughs> right? That's yeah. not interesting. Nobody's interested in that. <laughs> but if they, if they own two shares of JetBlue, which really excites them, then you could say, okay, now put, you know, put some money in this, this, this mutual fund and, and let it like sit there. And you don't have to be that interested in what the mutual fund's doing because you can just look at your two shares of JetBlue. So if it's, if it's what piques their curiosity to get them wanting to in, invest and wanting to be involved, how is that a bad thing? I see. You're, you're aiming for engagement more than anything. Absolutely. Yeah. because I mean. How many artists really want to be engaged mm. with finances? Yeah. No, you know? It's slim to none. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there are ways. Once, they, once, once you start showing some of those kinds of hooks that are out there, then it, they do become engaged and it becomes interesting. You know, artists, artists follow their creativity. They follow their, their curiosity. Um, they do it with their art. So why not apply that same idea to their finances to get them sort of hooked into saying, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting to do this. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, David, I can't I can't thank you enough for allowing me to pick your brain and uh, have you share some of your thoughts on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad that you reached out um, and thrilled that you remembered it from the that that short Capital One presentation too. Definitely. So definitely that's left great. an impression on me without question. Awesome. That's I, awesome. I found it to be most valuable. I, in fact, I, I would argue uh, between reading uh, Money Master the Game uh, by by uh, Tony Robbins and yours, I found yours a lot more approachable. Um, oh, well, thanks. It, it also wasn't, uh, it also wasn't as, as thick and you, you can kill someone with his book. You can't, you, with your book, it's clearly a thriving book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's meant to be as, as unintimidating as possible. Yeah, and see, and I'm a fan of Tony. I am, I am. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, I, I, I totally drink the Kool-Aid, but I, I, am a, I am an even bigger fan of what you've done for the artist with your book. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. You know, artists are never, most artists that we know are never going to be, you know, huge shareholders in anything where they can actually make a difference. But there can be enough artists that have a few shares that we can actually start impacting what's happening in the business community and what's, and, and what's happening and, and put sort of our um, personality and our values into that. And the example I'll give you is I was a shareholder in Lionsgate film. And um, they were trying a couple of years ago. And, I, and I, the reason I was a shareholder was because I really liked the product that Lionsgate was, was putting out there. I thought their films were very edgy. They were very creative. They were avant-garde. There was a corporate raider that came in a few years ago and tried to buy up the shares of the company to take control of Lionsgate, right? Mm. I kept refusing to sell. And I, I mean, I had like a hundred shares maybe. I mean, it was not, we're not talking a significant portion sure. of shares that I had, but I was refusing to, because I was like, I know I don't want them to lose the ability to be able to, to produce the kind of work that they've been producing. 
kept going on and on. I kept getting periodically, you know, I think they raised the price that they were willing to pay for the shares, kept refusing to. Finally, I got a notification saying that the this corporate raider was giving up their attempt to take over the company and would be returning, selling back to the company all the shares that they had been able to purchase, but they hadn't been able to get enough to take control of the company. And I don't know it for a fact, but I suspect that a lot of that was because of the small holders like me who liked the company and just didn't want to see it become about it being a corporation rather than being about a really good film company that produces really interesting films. So that's I think amazing. That there's something else there on the social level um, that we have to remember that we have a, we have a lot to say and some, and we all know in this country, money talks and we as artists can, you know, as a combined force can have some impact on the social um, environment. Yeah. I mean, that, that, those are such powerful implications to even, to even hear you say that. Now, I know that there's like non-disclosure agreements potentially with this, but do they, do they share projects with you that they intend to have come out as a shareholder? You mean like when you're, when you're a shareholder? Yeah. No, they, they, they don't until such time as it's, it's been um, already decided upon and they have to put it in front of the shareholders. So they don't, they don't give you inside information. Right, right, right. Definitely. You get information like that. A lot of times, um, each company is required to have an annual meeting, and they will have shareholder proposals. They'll have different kinds of proposals that are that you have to vote on as a shareholder. So a lot of times now, particularly what you're seeing showing up um, as proposals to vote on are things related to the environment and disclosing wow. greenhouse gas emissions, um, equal opportunity proposals, um, things like that, and you, that you can vote on as a shareholder and say, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, I want to vote against this. I don't think we should be, you know, doing this or whatever. So those kinds of things show up on, um, at the annual meetings quite often. And individual shareholders have become much more proactive in putting proposals on there like that. So, um, that you definitely, definitely, as a shareholder, you have more of an opportunity to be an activist in in how the company behaves than ever before, and I think it's continuing to move in that direction. So, that is so powerful. I would I would like to include that in the episode if if you don't mind. I yeah, think, of course. I think the social implication implications that that an artist can can glean from that about the almost a responsibility to become to become. Uh, knowledgeable about finance and to realize that you really can have a vote if you, if you understand money and a lot of things, I'm sure there's, there's ways that you can get involved in actual government. If you, if you, if you work hard enough to get involved, if you want to make a change on that scale, that's insane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's an important element that gets overlooked sometimes. Um, the investment club, I, one of the, in one of the intermission chapters in the book, I talk about us, going through the, the proxies and voting on them and trying to, um, and one club member having um, really having some, some difficult political views of one of our holdings. And rather than say, oh, I think we should sell it because we don't like what they're doing, 
our reaction was, well, let's, we're a shareholder, write to them and tell them we don't like what they're doing. And let's vote against what they're trying to do. And at least send a message as an owner that this isn't what we want. So it may not do any good at that moment because we may be too small to make a difference, but that's our right to do that. So rather than just say sell and walk away because we don't like what this company's doing, let's try to change it because we're an owner of it. So wow. I think sort of changing that mentality is also um, important. Yeah. I mean, that, that one right there was worth all the marbles as far as I'm concerned. Awesome. Thanks hey, so much for thanks absolutely. so much for thinking of me for this. Definitely. Okay. Okay. Take care. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I hope this blueprint will help you own the rhythm in your space. Feel free to subscribe and reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter at Philip Lanos, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-L-A-N-O-S. Also, you can visit ownTheRhythm.com if you want help producing your podcast. Open heart, open mind, and ask questions. Stay tuned for the next Blueprint.